0: Hey everyone, welcome to Mind Body Greens Beauty Podcast Clean Beauty School. I am your host and Mind Body Greens, Beauty Director Alexandra Ingler. On this podcast, we explore beauty through the lens of well-being. Thank you so, so much for joining me. In today's episode, we talk about the intersection of biotech and natural beauty. In a lot of ways, biotech is absolutely the future of the beauty industry. Not only will the advancements in biotech help us better understand our skin and how to better care for our skin health, but it can help us explore the natural world and harness and enhance plants' natural powers. And to talk about it, I'm having on Dr. Barb Pauldis. She is the founder of Codex Skin Lab's and her background is in biotech sciences. She explains more about her background in sciences specifically, and then how she transitioned over to skincare and, you know, all of the challenges that come along with that. So I'll let her tell her own story. But as you can see in the episode, she is very, very knowledgeable in all the advancements of biotech. So she is perfect person to have on and explain the complexities and explain all the exciting things that we can look forward to in the future. Not to mention, we also go over a few of my favorite topics here, including the skin microbiome and product testing and safety. So overall, it is just a really, really fascinating episode that Gets into all of the latest and greatest research and innovations happening in our beauty industry. So, you know, without further ado, let's talk to her. Barb, welcome. Hi. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I have had the pleasure of interviewing you for a story that I did probably two years ago now, which it's crazy to think how how fast time flies. That you know, I. I remember we had such an engaging conversation and I love your point of view on the beauty industry. So I am so excited to be chatting with you again today and get some updates on what you've been up to lately and just get some your insights on some recent developments that are happening in the beauty space. But before we get to all of that, you know, I want the audience to get to know you a little bit better, you know, as well as myself. Your background is is, as a scientist. So, you know, Let's start off with what drew you to pursuing a career in the sciences?
1: Well, as they say, the apple never falls far from the tree. And so it was really the curiosity and encouragement from my father, who himself is a scientist. So he taught me to question everything, to gather data, then try to understand what that data actually means. Sometimes in the process, you can even discover new things. And that's always the exciting part. And that led me to working in analytical equipment. So I was measuring everything from pollution to greenhouse gases for climate change, even to chemical warfare agents. And eventually into biotechnology, where I started designing equipment for making vaccines, cancer and gene therapies. And to me, you know, the big moment of my life was when I found out that Pfizer and Moderna were manufacturing the COVID vaccines and equipment that we had installed between 2014
0: and 2017. Wow. So, you know, you were working on really big, huge <laughs> biotech concepts and You know that that it's such an impressive background and I don't want to minimize the beauty industry because I am in the beauty industry, but why did you go into beauty? You know, what was the calling there?
1: So it was that my son had an allergy. It turns out to phenoxyethanol, he's probably one of 0.1% of people who have that kind of allergy. And yet that kind of spurred me on to look at the industry, to ask a lot of questions, not get a lot of answers in return. And that essentially made me want to go and change.
0: So you go on this journey because you you, you have a, a personal issue with a specific ingredient and you know you said you, you started questioning things so what were some of those things that you were questioning
1: so it started with just a- asking basic questions like what do you use this ingredient for what does it do have you safety tested it and all the time i got well go look go google it or you know that's confidential information and i had come from a field where we shared all of our data we shared equipment we went to conferences we shared results i thought okay i'm going to go look up a you know an ingredients conference. And I was told, no, this is proprietary. This is confidential. And it was like, okay, how does that work? And I got a lot of just silence. <laughs> really? And when I asked him, well, can I see some of your clinical testing data? Oh, it's confidential. It's private. And so to me, it just seemed like the industry needed a transformation because look, if I go buy a microwave. They tell me the wattage. If I go buy a computer, they tell me the amount of memory. They tell me the processor speed. If I buy a cell phone, same thing. They tell me camera, camera resolution, battery life. You know, everywhere we go where there's technology involved, there's quantification, right? There's data. I buy a cereal box. They tell me on the nutrition panel how many carbs, how much sodium, how much protein, you know, sugars, et cetera, how many vitamins I'm going to get from a serving. Everywhere but the beauty industry.
0: Yeah. So uh, what was it like getting up to speed within the beauty industry? Because obviously you came in as somewhat of a change maker, disruptor in that vein. So, you know, what was it like entering the beauty industry and then knowing that you are in it because you want to change, but also you you know, on some level, you do have to get acclimated to the industry around you, you know, so what was that experience like?
1: You're absolutely right. You kind of come in and you realize you have to fit into your ecosystem, your new (laughs) ecosystem. And so in all honesty, Alex, the transition was very, very rough. Having come from biotech, having come from kind of a PhD selling to another PhD, most of the time I spoke a different language to the people in the industry and Noah one can understand why on earth I would want to go measure things, why on earth I would want to put an efficacy panel on my carton. It was all about color and texture and fragrance. And I didn't understand why that was important when the product had to do something because you're paying money for it to do something, right? Also, I didn't understand the concept of storytelling, which is very important mm. in beauty. So in the we're dropping beauty from our name. So we're going to basically call ourselves a skin tech company, not a beauty company. We're in the technology of healthy skin. So we're going to be called Codex Labs now going forward. And we're really focused now on developing solutions for those people with skin conditions. So think of it as acne eczema, Jesus. psoriasis, rosacea. We believe that all skin should be healthy. We don't believe that you should have to cake it up and layer things to hide because you have a skin condition. And I mean, it's it's as simple as, you know, the old saying, you know, we want people to feel good in their own skin.
0: Yeah the next question I wanted to ask you is a question that I asked all my guests, but now I feel like I should reframe it. It's normally what is your beauty philosophy, but perhaps I should be asking what is your skin health philosophy?
1: (laughs) So you're talking to someone who used just to wash their face with soap for a good part of their life, you know, until they were told that they have to go to the duty-free shop and buy all this other stuff that they did not (laughs) really understand. But So to me, honestly, less is more. And it also goes back to consumption and climate change and creating pollution, which I've been measuring, you know, on and off my entire life for about, you know, God, I'm going to date myself 30 years. So it boils down to really the less you consume the less waste you produce and the smaller your personal carbon footprint. And so if a product, for example, is very effective and it's clinically proven very effective, you don't need a lot of it and you can put it in a package that can last somebody three to six months. So that means you're not buying a new package every month, and you're throwing that package into the garbage. In addition, if a product can be formulated to be multitasking, like for example, it hydrates and repairs your skin barrier and helps you shed the outer dry layers of your skin at the same time, you only need one product. I mean, in an ideal world, we'd have one cleanser and one quote, other serum cream that would do everything for you. Now, unfortunately, for a delivery into the skin, that's not a reality. But for example, I try and I also use, you know, minimalist skin routines. I don't want more than five steps, including SPF at the end, which means really no more than four products. And ideally, it would be two.
0: Yeah. I I also ask, what is your well-being philosophy? Because we, we like to view beauty through the lens of taking care of yourself and your health in general. So, you know, how do you approach
1: health? So to me, health and beauty come from within. And so it's a combination of feeling gratitude and stealing little moments in life because we're all so incredibly busy. And so by gratitude, and again, don't laugh, it's really simplistic. It's like looking up and seeing that the sky is blue. Or if you're walking, you see little flowers growing by the side of a road, or you hear a bird, or you see a deer on an evening walk. You know, think Disney Snow White, right? And by stealing little moments, I mean, you know, getting a hug from my son before he goes to bed or sitting outside at lunchtime and just feeling the sun on my skin or sneaking in, you know, two minutes of yoga after Zoom session.
0: Honestly, it makes me feel better that you practice gratitude in this way because I also do this. And sometimes I approach it and I'm like, oh, I'm such like, this is so woo woo. This is so, you know, like,
1: But it's it's not right. My grandmother, who lived through World War II, said that the biggest moment of gratitude she said was after her street was bombed and most of her neighbors were killed. She saw Daisy on the sidewalk, and she said she cried and she was just so grateful for still being on that sidewalk with that flower.
0: Yeah, you know, I and I do think you're right that it, you know, these things they matter and they are important to us and they get us through the day, no matter how big and small. So you know, there's there's always importance to it and. Maybe I just need to remind myself that just because it sometimes can feel silly to talk about gratitude doesn't mean it's silly in practice.
1: (laughs) And it has amazing mental health benefits, too, because it's it's seeing what you have rather than what you don't. Yes, absolutely.
0: So, okay, now we are going to get to (laughs) the point where we talk about all of the changes that need to happen in the industry. There's a few things that I want to chat with you about, but I first... I want to start with the microbiome. I think the microbiome is such a fascinating area of discovery within skin and skin health. And, you know, I think it's also something that, the, that you know, our readers and, you know, the people who come to my buddy Green, they're still figuring it out. They're still trying to understand. They're still trying to learn. And, you know, I think even, you'd probably agree with us. I think even people who develop it, who are developing products are still trying to figure it out. There's a lot to know about the microbiome. But you, it seems to me you've prioritized it in some respects. Why is that?
1: So you're absolutely right. We've prioritized it. And every single one of our products go through my microbiome certification before it ever even goes into any kind of testing, because it's the first, you know, harm philosophy that we have, because the microbiome, as you said, is incredibly important. And the more we learn about it, we're still in the infancy of the science, the more important and the more amazing it is. So I'm going to apologize in advance, Alex, this is probably going to be a really long answer. Feel free, uh, feel is free, is free to stop. Topic. This is my favorite topic.
0: So I'm Give it to me.
1: (laughs) So first of all, I think everyone needs to know that the microbiome is critical to skin health because it has several important functions. And the last thing we want to do with any of our products is to destabilize it, the natural balance of it, or kill it. So the first thing that it does for us is it prevents pathogens from colonizing our skin. So basically prevents infections. The existence of these pathogens are bad bacteria, you can call them, is all everywhere in our environment. And their presence can be on the surface of our skin, and it's basically a natural part of life. In fact, they're a natural part of the microbiome. But the skin and the microbiome, and imagine skin, your skin barrier with your microbiome is 10 to 20 microns thick. So imagine the entire surface that protects you from everything is the same thickness as your hair. Okay, look wow. at your hair and go, oh my God, that thin little layer is what protects my body from the outside from infections, from disease, and also keeps the water in so I don't dehydrate and die. And so basically the beneficial organisms, the beneficial bacteria, the good bacteria, they, seek, they secrete antimicrobial peptides. So basically you can think of it as they're kind of like your hand sanitizer. And this eliminates the pathogens and keeps their numbers in check and balance and prevents them from colonizing your skin. And so as long as the pathogens don't outnumber the good bacteria, the good microorganisms, the microbiome is balanced. And the problem is if a product tips everything in the favor of the pathogens, then skin health and appearance start to suffer. And that's when you start getting redness, inflammation, irritation, flakiness, um patches on your skin, et cetera. So that's basically starts with an imbalance of the microbiome. Another is that it does support what I mentioned, the skin barrier. It's actually part of the skin barrier. There's a physical part of the skin barrier, which is your cells. And then there's the microbiome, which is also called the acid mantle. And this basically prevents infection, but also it secretes certain molecules like fatty acids and lipids. So fats basically that help Nerve skin cells. And that also fills the spaces in between the skin cells. So think of it as they make the mortar that holds the bricks that are your skin cells together. And that strengthens the skin barrier in the cell matrix and enhances the barrier function. So if you kill the microbiome, guess what? Yeah. And the last important function is communication with the body's immune system. And this is probably the least well understood connection that people are studying. And so if the microbiome is overrun by pathogens, it basically, the good microbes band together and they send messages to the rest of the immune system inside the body asking for help. And this coordinated effort usually on a cellular level is what stimulates what are called immune mediators. And these are immune immune cells that are located in your skin. And they basically get your immune system into action, and that releases pathogen-destroying and wound-healing molecules. So basically, if you didn't have that communication, because all the you can think of them like the soldiers at the front, if they didn't communicate they're being attacked, your body wouldn't know to defend itself. So it's kind of in short, they tell your body about infections, prevent infections, do what they can to get rid of the bad pathogens by themselves, and they also make very important molecules that are part of your skin barrier. So- you don't get all these skin problems.
0: So it does a lot, we can say, pretty comfortably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, it, like I said, it is one of my favorite topics of interest just because, you know, of the broad scope of functions it does and how exciting of an area of research it is. And, you know, speaking on the fact that it is an exciting area of research, is there a specific area within the microbiome space that you are most excited about or interested about learning more like I just you were you seem like somebody who keeps on the pulse of this sort of thing so I want to know like what where's the research taking us next?
1: <laughs> so it's actually beyond skin. So if you know you have a microbiome in your mouth, you have a microbiome under your armpits, you have basically microbiome environments all over your body. And so to me right now, it's the kind of incipient study of the relationship between the skin and gut microbiome. So basically your intestinal microbiome and the surface microbiome thats that I'm tracking right now because In the skin conditions domain, like, again, the eczema, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, acne, we're seeing more and more research coming out that ties the two together, and that would allow far more integrative approaches to resolving skin problems. So in the area that we're now very much in, the gut microbiome actually turns out to be a Big indicator of skin disorders. Not only is the skin microbiome altered, but the gut microbiome is altered as well. And since the microbiome is a key regulator for the immune system, like we just talked about, and it really wants to maintain balance called homeostasis, it actually communicates with tissues and organs, and it's a bidirectional, it's like a two-way road. And so any imbalance, which we call dysbiosis in the skin or the gut microbiome, then become an altered immune response that can promote skin disease. And so, for example, atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, as well as acne, dandruff, and skin cancer have all been linked to gut microbiome disorders. There's lots of papers now, for example, about leaky gut. I don't know if you heard about leaky gut, but it's right. been now tied to atopic dermatitis. So basically eczema or skin barrier function in general has been tied to how much butyrate we produce in by various gut bacteria. And all that can be modulated with diet. So to me, it's fascinating because we can start bringing diet into, skincare in a major, yeah. major way. You
0: know, this stuff, I, I love that you went down this path because, you know, I think for so long, especially in the beauty industry, people were so afraid to be like, oh, there's connection about what you eat to, to your skin. Because I think people just wanted to sell the idea that, no, it's only about what you put it on topically. And we know that's not true. And, you know, to see this connection between the gut microbiome, and then your skin health, I think we're starting to understand, you know, why that connection is there, the mechanisms behind it. And like, yes, on one level, the old wives tales of if you eat French fries, you're going to have a zit. Like, yeah, we understand that it's not that simplistic, but clearly there is a connection between what we're eating and what is happening on the surface. And yeah, I just think it's really exciting.
1: It is. And things like caffeine, things like alcohol, all of that can modulate your gut microbiome and lead to various skin conditions. So, you know, again, and it goes back to everything in moderation, right? Sure.
0: Okay. So we obviously know that the microbiome is important and we know a lot. It affects how our skin appears. However, you are somebody who is in the business of topicals that... Supports for the now. microbiome. For now. Yes, for, for now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that supports the microbiome, right? So, how do you go about formulating something that you know that is one not going to hurt it, and two, perhaps support it.
1: So we basically developed a novel preservation system a long time ago now, it seems four or five years ago. It's called Preservax, and it uses lactobacillus ferments and lactobacillus is actually one of the microbiome organisms, one of your beneficial organisms. And so we have the ferment from lactobacillus. We have the, that's a great antibacterial. Lactobacillus on your skin makes it naturally. We just manufacture it with biotechnology. Okay. Then we ferment coconut with it. That's great against fungi. And then we add a little bit of organic acid like sodium benzoate and that's usually found in soft drinks or ice cream or potassium sorbate which is also found in foods those are good for yeast and molds and so this combined you can think of it as synergistic preservation system is microbiome friendly and that's why we use it in all of our products that contain water anything that is just an oil if as long as you don't have water you don't have to have a preservative system but the moment you have water like in a cream or hydrating cream you have to have a preservative system and so we found that that allows us to pass them a microbiome certificate without too many worries. Fascinating. And, you know, just to put, you know, an extra point
0: onto that, I think why preservative systems can often be really hard on your microbiome is because the point of a preservative system is to kill bacteria, right? Exactly. And then you put it on your skin and then all of a sudden, you know, that might be messing with it. So exactly. I, I just want to point that out because I, I think I want to draw the connection for people who might be listening on why the preservative part is so important.
1: Exactly. And so that's why we also have propanediol, which is a corn ferment. And that is actually a humectant because you actually don't want to dry out the surface of your skin either. And so it's a combination. You can think of a good formulation as a delicate balance. The other thing I was just going to mention, since you said, you know, preservatives were designed to kind of preserve things and kill everything. In formulation, it's important. A lot of preservatives can also come already preserved in phenoxyethanol. So you can get the phenomenon of phenoxyethanol stacking, you know, you can think of, okay, well, I have a cap that I shouldn't exceed European regulations, but what if every ingredient comes with 0.1% phenoxyethanol and I'm using 10 ingredients while I'm at 1%. So you have to be very careful in formulating to not exceed, you know, with phenoxyethanol to not exceed those limits. Whereas with our preservative system, it's actually edible, which was important for me for, you know, for children using some of these products because children get eczema or teenagers have acne. So we wanted the product to be something you could even eat if you wanted to. Not that we recommend it. (laughs)
0: Okay. Fair. Okay. So, you know, your background is obviously in biotech and now you are in I don't want to say beauty, but skin health. So what is it like marrying the two fields and what is the
1: future of that marriage? So to me, it's all about plants. I know you're wondering, like, what do plants have to do with biotech? But plants have been a primary source for cosmetic ingredients ever since we can remember, you know, anti-aging, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, UV protective, anti-wrinkling, I could go on on and on. And a lot of people have been using, especially with the clean beauty movement, natural extracts from plants using classical methods. You know, they basically chop them up and put them in oil, chop them up and put them in water, extract with CO2 gas, et cetera. And that's basically been widely used for topical skincare products. Over the last decade, however, um, and also through encouragement of some of the companies I used to work with, we're seeing a lot of plant-based biotech ingredients. And what I mean by that is instead of... Putting growing plants in a field, chopping them up, transporting them, and doing these traditional extraction methods, you can actually isolate which cell in that plant is the one that produces the active that creates the gene expression in your skin and gets you the desired you know, effect that you want in your product. And then you can just go and multiply that cell trillions and trillions and trillions of time. Think of a mixer in your kitchen full of basically like a single cell like say green algae and you're just growing it, you're feeding it, you're adding a little bit of water, you make more of it, you make more of it until that whole mixer is filled. And it's like a densely green color. And then you go and extract from that. So there's no more waste because you're not using land. You're just using just the amount of liquid you need, very little energy. So it's very climate friendly. And because you're starting with a plant stem cell, you don't have to worry about ground pollution, air pollution, right? So you don't have to worry about contamination. So it's very, very pure. And because you're only producing the cell that you want that has the active, it's incredibly concentrated. And so this next generation, you know, we call them natural biotech products because they're still made from real plant cells, but they're manufactured the same way we make vaccines, the same way we make cancer therapeutics. They're basically cultured in what we call a bioreactor. That mixer thing is called a bioreactor. And you can get very strong activity from these. And so it's really much more concentration. So you don't need to use as much. So again, less is more. And you can get incredible efficacy in the skincare product. For example, the concentration can be up to 100 times than a typical nature extract. And so to me, the sustainability is super exciting, the activity, the purity, and then the extracts also from these plant cell cultures can easily be standardized and very reproducibly manufactured. So now it's in a lab. So you don't have to worry about the weather. You don't have to worry about drought. You don't have to worry about the pickers getting COVID, which we learned the hard way in Ireland, they all got COVID in the summer of 2020, and so there were no plant picking. All the plants basically rotted. You don't have to worry about pathogens from the fields, bugs, pesticides, you know, allergens, or anything of that, um, or any other toxic substances. And so because they're produced in a very controlled environment, you also get batch-to-batch reproducibility. So from a manufacturing perspective, it's about as ideal as you can get. And then with the right amount of research, you can find exactly the cell to do exactly what you want. And so you can make incredibly precision kinds of products. So that's why we call it skin tech.
0: Wow. I mean, really exciting stuff, right? I mean, because I, I think about it. It's future. I think it's the future. Absolutely. Well, like, you know, because I think about why when I talk to a lot of people who are mind, green community members or, you know, people even on this podcast who like using natural ingredients, as you know, we always come back to the idea of there is so much power in plants. But we also know that there are a lot of challenges with working with plants. All the same things that you just mentioned, whether it's a sustainability issue, whether it's an issue that, you know, maybe this one part of a plant is good, but That it also comes with things that are perhaps irritating to the skin, you know, when you use an an entire extract, whatever it is. So this, I mean, this really does seem like you're able to get the best of both worlds. You're able to get the power of the plant that we all instinctively know there's something there. Like plants are powerful, they're medicine, but you're able to do it in a way that utilizes the incredible technology that we have.
1: Exactly. And what's amazing is that then you can pick the plant apart and test it cell by cell and you look at the gene expression of what each different kind of cell has on skin. And so again, you can figure out exactly what effect you want to have, what it's going to do, what genes in your skin it's going to affect. So for example, if you're looking at things like inflammation, or you're looking at oxidative stress in the skin, or you're looking at basically anything associated with the skin conditions, that's why we kind of say, well, it's not quite a drug product because it's not regulated by the FDA yet, but it definitely has the potency and the potential to turn into a drug product, which is why we're heading into OTC, which is over-the-counter topicals.
0: Okay so you are uh, I think probably our listeners can gather by now that you are big on education and you're big on <laughs> helping the consumer understand what goes into the product and what goes into skincare in general etc it is you know it, it's a very clear part of your messaging and from what I know about you it's a very clear part of your passions where does that come from you know like why why is education
1: such a core mission of because knowledge is power And I want to put that power into the consumer hands. And just like when I was calling all these companies to ask questions and being told everything is confidential and proprietary, I want people to be able to ask questions so that then they can make their own decisions about the transparency of the industry and the other companies. And if you think about, for example, the food industry, right? We had no idea what was in our food 40 years ago. And that's when people started talking about the nutrition panel. And today I think everyone knows, you know, okay, I know how to read the nutrition panel. I know how many proteins I wanna have in my diet. I wanna cut carbs or I don't wanna cut carbs. You know, I wanna watch my sugars or I don't care about my sugars. But the point is now, Every bit of food, processed food, gives us that amount of information, gives us the amount of sodium, gives us the amount of vitamins and minerals in it. And so now we can make informed decisions about our food. And so to me, it's simply the same thing. I want people to be able to make informed decisions about their skin. And when you think about it, when we start integrating our gut and our skin together with the microbiome, then, you know, you don't want to have one side where people have really good understanding and control and the other side being the skin where they have none because they haven't been educated. And because to be honest, an educated consumer for a company is a dangerous consumer because they Mm. ask questions.
0: Sure. Yeah. I, I want to ask, one of my favorite things to do on this podcast is is to have people on and kind of bust some myths that get on their nerves. And I think you'd be a great guest to do that with. So what, what are some common myths that exist in the beauty industry that really grind you
1: and why? And let's correct them here. Sounds great. So like any scientist, I hate the word clean because sure. to me, clean means free of dirt right? So basically without contamination. The other word I absolutely hate when it's used is chemical because water mm. is a chemical. You know, you can overdose on water and kill yourself. You can overdose on salt. You know, it's chemicals are basically a scientific word for molecule. But the biggest myth that I truly and really grates on me, as you said, is consumer studies being paraded as clinical trials. Consumer studies or consumer trials, as they sometimes call them, or they sometimes even call them clinical studies, even though they're not, are misleading because they don't measure the quantitative performance of products. They're statistics on opinions, kind of like, are you going to vote Democrat or Republican this election? So they're pretty much like polls, but a lot of brands use them as pseudoscientific proof. And so, To me, the funniest moment was actually when we launched our Shant drying cream. It's basically an oil reduction oil control cream because it dries out the skin. It reduces oil. And yet when, so we measured a 13% decrease in skin hydration with a corneometer. That's the instrument that derms use in research. But over 80% of people, because we took the poll, that's just part of how we do our clinical trials, said they felt their skin had never felt more hydrated. And so I'm sitting there scratching my head kind of going, all right, so your skin feels hydrated, but we just dried it out to mattify it. So that basically tells me that, you know, we don't have sensors in our skin, like we don't have high water sensors in our skin, so we can't feel it. And so what we feel isn't necessarily what's biologically occurring, but the industry treats these poles as evidence. And people need to understand that. Human skin, it's a complex and very sensitive system. We do have all kinds of sensors embedded, so things like temperature right we can feel heat we can feel pressure like light touch or we can feel mechanical pressure we can feel deformation we can feel chemical corrosion like you feel something burning on your skin and we have very high sensitivity and resolution but we can't feel our skin barrier we can't feel evaporation from our skin we can't feel you know if it's hydrated or not so you know we can feel yeah. pain But there's a lot of things we can't feel. And how do you, you know, measure redness? You know, you can say, oh, we decrease redness a lot. Well, if you don't actually measure it and quantify it with a calibrated instrument, you don't really know. And with filtering today, you know, you can make any before and after you want. So to me, I hate before and afters. I really hate anything that isn't quantified. And I really hate when companies say, oh, we did clinical trials and 80% of consumers, you sure. know, measured increased hydration. And then it's kind of like, okay, because I'm there like, okay, okay, you measured, you measured, you have your percentage, you know, you measured it. And then it's like, that's it. And it's like, well, by how much, you know, because I can, I can get a 0.1% result. Well, you know, Alex, that's an increase. Is it meaningful? No. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. We see this all of the time. And I do think that it plays into this idea that, you know, consumers, they want to see data and they want to see numbers. Consumers are very clearly hungry for some sort of data on the marketing and some level like we we know this. This has been a trend for the past several years. So it plays into that trend, but it's not a meaningful step in the right direction. You know, it's it's just like you said, it's just it's people's perceptions. And we all know that people's perceptions is, can be valuable.
1: Um, and the problem is that and, and this is that ties kind of the biggest skincare myth that, you know, brands state product claims without proof of efficacy. And the problem is the U.S. market is an honor system. Mm-hmm. So basically, the FDA says, you know, don't do this. But there's no oversight like in the drug world where you have to do clinical trials, you have to go through FDA approval. There's no watchdog to verify claims. So basically, brands can say anything they want on the box and they can use all these flowery words, which to me are meaningless with no scientific efficacy or proof behind them. And they get away with it because there is no watchdog.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about testing. One thing that I know that you guys do, which I really, really love, is you lay out all of the testing that all of your products go through. And what I think is interesting is that some of these tests are, they're more standards in the industry in terms of like stability, preservative efficacy test and then you show the ones that are, a little, that are far more rigorous, you know, and those are, you know, the efficacy ones that you were talking about. But let's break down what sort of testing a product can go through prior to hitting the market because you know i think there's a lot of confusion here so you know let's talk about like stability for example like what exactly is stability testing
1: Sure. So for example, stability tests are used to determine shelf life and demonstrate how the product quality will vary with time and under different environmental factors. So like temperature and humidity. So you measure product attributes like appearance, color, phase separation, you know, you don't want the oils and the water to separate. Odor, how does it live in the packaging? Does it lose weight? Like does anything evaporate from it? What is the pH of it? What is the viscosity, the density, microbial quality? All of those are tested in stability and So it's important for this testing because this is how you predict and avoid changes to the physical state of the finished product. For example, during transportation, right, during storage, during handling, you know, what if it's in a warehouse that gets really, really hot because it's in the middle of Texas in the summer? What if it, you know, what if the product is delivered to your doorstep, you know, and it's the East Coast in the middle of winter and it's minus 40 below, right? So that's the reason for really performing these tests is to understand the durability of the product, and and also to determine what the period after opening is, like how long you can actually use it for. Sure.
0: And then what is preservative efficacy
1: testing, PET? So that's to determine how your preservative system responds to contamination. So the product is actually artificially contaminated. And then you evaluate, you basically count the contamination. So in order for the product to pass the testing, your preservative system has to be sufficiently effective to decrease those contaminant microorganisms to allowed predefined limits. And those are very, very low, by the way, because you don't want those things in. So the challenge organisms are usually well-defined find by the industry. So, you know, I can rattle off a few, they probably won't mean much, but like pseudonomas, aeruginosa, staphylococcus aeruginosa, candida albicans, aspergillus, brasiliensis. Some of them are black dots. Some of them are like white. It usually takes about four weeks. And then it has to be, if you reformulate anything, you have to do it again. So if you make any kind of change, every time you make that kind of formulation change, you have to redo it.
0: Follow-up question to that. And correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that these tests are standardized in the industry, but they're not FDA required?
1: Yeah. So this is where we differ from Europe. So the law here in the United States does not require cosmetic products and ingredients except for color additives okay. to be approved by the FDA before they go on market. This is not true of OTC products, but cosmetics. However, you know the FDA will state that cosmetics must not be adulterated or misbranded okay so that's the honor system part that means you know the intention is for products to be safe for consumers when used according to the labeling so that goes back to the labeling or as people customarily use them and the fda assumes the products are properly labeled however the FDA doesn't have a list of tests that are required for a particular cosmetic product or ingredient. The brand is responsible for that and ensuring that the product is safe when used according to the directions. Now, newcomers to cosmetics and cosmetic manufacturing sometimes think that because they used a product themselves or they made it in their kitchen with no apparent problems or because the ingredients are natural or organic or botanical, the product must be safe. But I I would definitely not make that assumption. You you know, basically you don't have to test. But if your product becomes contaminated and people get sick you become fully liable. And we've seen that happen now, you know, with some kind of the big brands and some of the new kind of uh, consumer diets where some of their products, you know, actually made people quite sick and they had a lot of explaining to do. Now in Europe, as I mentioned, it's completely different. Testing is an important part of a cosmetic product registration. There you actually have to register your cosmetic product and therefore they have to go and undergo all the required testing in defined in the EU Cosmetic Regulation. For those of you who have a pen, it's EC1223-2009. And in order to be compliant, and more importantly, to be you know, safe according to the European Union, all these tests have to be done. So cosmetic products in the EU you have to be produced according to what's called good manufacturing practice. CGMP for cosmetics, again, it's those with a pencil, it's ISO 22716. GMP requires that every batch is tested for microbiological, physical, and chemical properties to ensure safety. That means that this preservative efficacy testing as is required for sales in Europe as a stability testing. Wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's such a stark difference. And, you know, so that's kind of, even though they're not acquired in the beauty industry and the U.S., those are kind of like the standardized ones that people typically do just for safety. You know, that way they don't get sued later on. So, you know, they kind of, they, they do them, like you said, as sort of an honor system to make sure that later on they don't run into any troubles. However, there are additional tests that you can do that are not necessarily that to do with the safety but are more about efficacy so
1: can you explain what some of those tests might look like and what those absolutely so they fall into two categories one is you can think of it as irritation testing and the other is in fact product performance testing okay. so hript otherwise known as human repeat insult patch testing so that kind of tells you what it is those are tests that are performed for the basic again exposure on human skin. And so this test determines the potential for irritation, sensitization, or allergic contact of your product. This is something I would highly recommend doing. And it also confirms that repeated applications of the product under maximized conditions don't induce any delayed allergic reaction. So it's literally what it says. They take a patch, they put the product on the patch, and they put it on you, and they see if your body responds, i.e. it's insulted, like if it gets irritated. We also perform eye safety and vaginal safety for any bath products that we make in addition to the microbial testing the my microbiome certification to make sure it doesn't so we don't want to irritate eyes we don't want to irritate vaginas and we don't want to kill the microbiome or imbalance the microbiome. That ensures that the diversity of the skin is maintained, especially for people with skin conditions. That balance is incredibly important in the microbiome. Now, efficacy testing, ultimately you're paying money for a product. So you want to make sure it actually does something, right? That's why you're paying for it. And so efficacy testing really tests the intended purpose. And it quantifies, keyword here, quantify. So you want to see a number, like a result, the effects on human skin. And so it's, it's crucial. Like you can't have scientific substantiation and claims with any state, without a state-of-the-art measurement technique. So the testing is usually carried out by third parties. It's a clinical test facility, and it's done under the supervision of a dermatologist and a toxicologist, again, for mm-hmm. safety of the patients. Technicians use instrumentation that are accepted by the derm community. The derm community uses this equipment in their own research, and yeah. they evaluate and, again, quantify specific parameters. And again, again, quantitative measurements. I can't repeat that often enough. And so (laughs) typical clinical parameters, you know, then need to be reported that way. So we don't believe in words. We actually believe in numbers. That's why we have the efficacy panel. And then we've just made little pseudonyms, you know, you can go to our website and see, you know, C O R means corneometer. Corneometer means hydration. You know, T E W L means transepidermal water loss. That's this, your skin barrier quality. You know, how much water is evaporating through your skin. C U T cutometer. That's a measure of skin firmness. And I can go on, but sure. basically, there's a standard list. It's about twelve instruments. You don't necessarily have to measure every single one for every single product. They have different functions, but you you'd need to have a number. I'm sorry. So I also know that sustainability is very important to you. We
0: talked a little bit about sustainability in terms of biotech and the ways in which biotech can advance our sustainability initiatives. But, you know, outside of that conversation, what sort of, what sort of conversations are happening around sustainability and like what, what excites you or what are you intrigued by in
1: terms of new development? So I think that first of all, the industry is as a whole, very, very aware now of sustainability compared to four years ago. And I think there's really a lot of effort being made trying to change things, whether it's using recycled plastics, more recyclable materials, upcycling food. But I think the industry fundamentally (laughs) needs to rethink how it sells products to consumers. Because when you start thinking of all the sachets, all the miniature samples that are constantly given away, and are actually impossible to recycle. I didn't know if you know this, Alex, but anything smaller than a credit card is not recyclable. So anything like that petite or that sachet is not recyclable. And so because the industry has taught consumers to be so decision-making on things like texture and fragrance rather than product performance, and you can't really see what a product's going to do in one serving, because their average skin turnover period for even someone in their 20s is two to three weeks, you're basically evaluating the product on how it smells and how it makes your skin feel at that moment, not really what the product does. So what would actually truly excite me is if the industry actually packed it up and made a commitment in terms of sampling to only sample in travel sizes. And they're gonna start screaming at me saying, we can't afford to do this, we can't afford to do this. Well, neither can we, but it's the right thing to do because a travel size that lasts about two weeks and is large enough that you can recycle it will actually make a meaningful change in sustainability. And it will also help shift the consumer mindset to, okay, you know, at the beginning and end of that two week period, what did it do for my skin? So it will drive decision-making based more on performance and again, using fewer products because if one product in two weeks can really make that much of a difference, then you don't need to buy 17 different products. So we've actually made a decision this year at Kodak to stop manufacturing sachets and five milliliter, the little petite tubes. So the Shant production run that we had earlier this summer is the last of its kind for us because we realized that every year we were putting a quarter million unrecyclable samples out there. And I cannot ethically live with that. And they don't prove, in my opinion, they don't prove anything to consumer about what our products really do. And so to me, that's where sustainability needs to start. It's again, in the less is more. And allowing people to, again, make informed decisions over a two-week period of
0: time. Yeah. I think you're spot on in that we, the beauty industry has gotten a lot better in the past few, few years, admirable changes are being made, but in order to move forward at this point, I mean, it has to be a con, a consumption mindset shift. Like we just have to dramatically change about how we consume in the beauty industry. And, you know, I, I
1: I think you know, we-, we all love our beauty boxes, oh, but, why put, but why not put why not put travel-size samples in there, right? Sure. People would be thrilled, right? Sure. And, you know, just even
0: too, it's like we have this idea in the bead industry that everybody needs to be trying a billion products and everybody needs to be experimenting and swapping and all this and all that. And... I- Everybody acts like they're their own beauty influencer who's about to like go on live and say, I've just been trying this for, you know, XYZ and And not all of us need to consume beauty that way. Agreed. Most of us just really need to find products that we like and stick to them. And I say that as a beauty editor whose job it is to do this. And I have even realized the amount of damaging mindset that sometimes I put out into the world by saying, Oh, I'm trying a bunch of different stuff. Like we shouldn't necessarily be putting that out
1: into the universe. True, but again, you know, trying innovative products, really trying them. I think you're doing a great service for the industry because it's an, you're an educated voice again. It's just when you have like a box that comes with like 20 different little sachets, like that's not what you do. You actually allow people sure. to make informed, cha- you know, choices so that they buy one.
0: Yeah, we do definitely need to try stuff out, but I do think that. There there has to be a mindset shift here. There just has to. That's the only way forward. And I'll get us my my soapbox after saying that. Okay, so I want to ask what you do for yourself.
1: Let's start with what you do for yourself. So I usually never have more than five minutes because I'm trying to get my son to school and there's phone calls and all kinds of stuff. So I usually have five minutes to shower. Apply skincare and dress. So I have a really, really simple routine. I use our Bia exfoliating wash because I have dry skin. I'm over 50, you know, so my hormones are changing and I have, you know, dry skin. And so I use that morning and night in the shower because that's no extra time. And then I use my onto serum because that actually redensifies skin. It's really neat, it firms and redensifies. And so I use that again morning and night, that way I don't have to think. And then the only difference between morning and night is I slap on the onto moisturizer in the day because it has pollution protection. And onto night cream because it's a heavier cream with a plant retinol for nighttime treatment. And that's it, you know. And then usually I'm not that great about applying SPF because I'm indoors most of the day and I have blinds. So I don't really have any direct sunlight. If I go out, you know, to exercise or I'm spending time outside in the sun, then I will apply SPF. And if it's super, super, super dry or I'm going skiing, then I will put on the facial oil. But that's kind of like the exception. Because, and now what I do spend most of my time, though, for my son's skin is chasing him with the new shot collection to clean his face, apply the toner, apply the oil control cream. You know, there, yeah. there's times, you know, I wish it were easier, but that's what I spend most of my time doing. Or every Friday, I slap the shot clay mask on him because he <laughs> turns red from wearing masks to school. And so I spend more time caring for his skin than mine, actually.
0: <laughs> well, you're a good mob. Well, I, your, your routine is very edited and to the point, which makes sense for you after having talked to you. But let's talk about how you take care of yourself in general. You know, we believe that everything is skincare, from how much you sleep to what you eat to how you move your body. So I always love hearing about how people take care of themselves. You know, what are your wellness must haves?
1: So the first is water. Like I I follow water. I'm followed around by water. (laughs) Hydration is really, really important, not just for your skin, but for having your organs function properly and in general, you know, eliminating toxins from your body. But now I've discovered the power of sleep. So during COVID, when I didn't have to travel as much, I discovered that it's awesome to sleep for at least six hours. When I was younger and for most of my life, I lived on about four hours of sleep because, you know, when you're not sleeping, you're doing something, but our bodies really do need time to recover. And so increasing your sleep hours will have significant benefits just in overall health. I also never have any devices near my bed because they yeah. can buzz, they can bump, you know, you can get the light turned on. And I always like to have very, very cool room air. I find that you get much better quality of sleep. It's kind of that old you know, European Alpine kind of open the windows and you freeze under your warm duvet kind of thing. And then I try to walk at least six to seven miles a day. This is really good for mental health, I think, but it gives me kind of daily moderate exercise, which adds up. Then I do HIIT training three to five times a week, depending on how busy I am. And walking, you can think, right? And so you can, first of all, see that gratitude. You can see those little things as you're walking, but then you can also evaluate yourself. And your relationships and then you can come back and you know work or interact with other people in a just calmer you know more pleasant manner and less stress and now that COVID restrictions have been lifted i'm actually you know excited that i'm going to be able to escape and hide in a european spa with seawater therapy i love thalassotherapy they're basically they take ocean water they have these massive jets and they basically bombard you with water and wrap you in seaweed And I just can't, I love those therapies. So I want to retire. I want to retire near one of those (laughs) thaluses while someday in Europe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This has been so, so educational. Thank you so much again for joining us and just helping us understand this complicated industry and also get excited about what's to come because there is a lot to look forward to. So thank you so, so
1: much. Thank you very much, Alex, for this opportunity and thanks to all the listeners.
0: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want more beauty content, you can find it at mindbodygreen.com or any of our social channels. And finally, if you liked this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.